This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. The soaring federal debt has once again brought us to a point where the options around policy have to be discussed, and that is part of the latest work done by the Penn Wharton budget model. A new brief looks at different options that should be considered, while at the same time still leaving a path to grow the economy. Kent Smetters is faculty director of the Penn Wharton budget model, as well as professor of business economics and public policy at the Wharton School. Kent, great to have you back with us. Thanks for a few moments. Hey, great to be back. Thank you. All right. So the the idea of bringing down the debt while growing the economy in this kind of landscape we have right now, how much of a challenge is it at the moment? You know, if people understand the baseline, right, that the growing debt itself um, will contract the economy uh, it, that is relative to where otherwise would have been without that debt, then we, in fact, can grow the economy relative to this baseline that has this growing debt. And so it, the fact of the matter is we can't just do simple projections from the past in terms of economic growth. We have to look forward. And because debt is climbing so much, that debt is going to compete with uh, private capital for uh, international capital flows, household saving in the U.S. economy, it's going to reduce economic growth. So relative to that uh, correct baseline, we can definitely, there's a whole range of options from increasing revenue to spending cuts and some mixture in between that we can use to grow the economy. Right. And so those are the kind of the three options to which you lay out in this brief. Take us a little deeper into exactly what what you pitch here. Yeah. And so uh, we never advocate at the Penn Wharton budget model, but we certainly will lay out options. We've always done that for major fiscal issues in the past. And policymakers often adopt one of those. And so in this case, we simply say, okay, suppose that you want to try to tax your way out and increase taxes on kind of higher income people. Well, there's, you know, uh, we, we show the effect of that. It does actually uh, uh, grow the economy a bit, but it's not going to grow it as much um, as things like reducing some spending as well. So because higher taxes also compete um, for capital in, in the sense that they will uh, distort incentives to save, um, incentives to work, and so forth. But the really bottom line for the tax route is that if, in fact, you're just trying to tax the rich, there's not going to be enough there. It's hard for people to understand that because of all the populism and the news about it. But if you're just trying to tax millionaires and billionaires, there's simply not a deep enough pool there. Uh, they already face pretty high marginal tax rates, especially when you account for state and local. Uh, and there's just not enough of a deep pool there just to, to be able to tax your way out. It's going to require some something on top of that. So with these with these different plans that you have in place, one of which also looks at addressing some of the issues around Social Security and Medicare as well. Yeah. And, you know, I'll tell you that this is always the third rail of politics, of course. But nonetheless, there are ways of doing adjustments in both programs that you could actually be progressive, in particular, even have a larger benefit for lower income people. Um, and that would require smaller benefit for higher income people while doing things like gradually over time increasing the retirement age, as well as potentially increasing the payroll tax. Uh, a bit. And so, you know, 
increases in retirement age. People don't like it, but nonetheless, we are we do tend to, tend to live longer over time. And if it's done gradually, like a couple months uh, increase in the retirement age for every year or two, um, it can be done and really deliver powerful effects on the budget as well as the economy. As people work a little bit longer, they save a bit more, and that actually has the biggest kind of a positive macro effects of, of, of them all. Let me touch on that again for a moment, because obviously, as you said, we're living a little bit longer these days. But it seems like because of some of the things that we've seen play out in the last two decades, obviously, the financial crisis going back to uh, 07, 08, 09 uh, and what we dealt with with the pandemic, that people are staying longer because maybe in case they have to, you know, kind of recoup some of the losses. So. The, the fact that maybe it's just the fact of, of the potentially the government mandating a later retirement age that would be the kind of ruffling of the feathers uh, with bringing that idea forward? Yeah, and so a lot of people do still retire uh, even before the normal retirement age because they're kind of orienting on this early retirement age that they can start to get a reduced Social Security benefit. Um, with respect to and so the idea if you kind of shift that window over time um, and you know it's a slow adjustment over time uh, then uh, people will will in fact continue to work a little bit longer they'll actually save a little bit more for retirement that's what all the evidence shows Um, one reason why a lot of households uh, right now have very little saving is precisely because it, it actually turns out that's rational. Given our current fiscal policy uh, of Social Security and Medicare, they're generous enough that a lot of households are actually, say, even though they have a low level of saving, it, 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 it's consistent with those programs. So, so uh, the, we, all the evidence shows that, in fact, if you simply change those things slowly over time, you're going to get more saving from households, working a little bit longer, and that will be proportional to the fact that their lifespans are also increasing a bit. It is true in the United States, by the way, some people say, haven't lifespans gone down a little bit? Yes, there's a COVID thing, um, uh, but uh, there's diabetes, there's been opioids, uh, you know, uh, a big drug crisis and so forth. But in terms of kind of the main drivers of this program, um, and that is who's actually contributing, who's getting uh, benefits from Social Security and Medicare, they are still continuing uh, to live longer. The third option that you bring forward in this in this brief is interesting because of the all of the different ideas that are in the mix here uh, around tax increases and spending cuts and, and the idea of a value-added tax. And it's obviously something that, you know, we see taxes more at the state levels, not so much at the federal level, uh, to have the federal government getting into that boat is one side of the story, but also just even something like disallowing all itemized deductions in terms yeah. of the you know the tax element. It, it, take us a little deeper into kind of the ideas built around this uh, different option. Yeah, and this is a pretty big uh, change for sure. I mean, let's talk about the value-added tax uh, first. Uh, most European countries have a value-added tax. Most uh, uh, countries to the south of us have a value-added tax. United States is unique in not having a value-added tax at any significant level at the federal level. And historically, Republicans hated the value-added tax because they thought it was sneaky. Democrats didn't like it because they thought it was flat uh, tax and not progressive enough. 
whereas in, in Europe, they don't really care how flat or progressive their tax system is. They focus much more on how they, how they spend the money, and the value-added tax allows them to raise more revenue. Here's what I would say is that if your primary way of trying to deal with this increased debt is to mainly just raise taxes, you just can't do it pretty much nowadays, uh, given how far along we are without a value-added tax. It would be very hard to do it um, without uh, something like a value-added tax or a really broad-based income tax that goes well below the 400000 threshold that the Democrats yeah. have, have said is the line in the sand. And so um, the value-added tax may be part of that solution. Another thing that we do in the United States is that we do actually a lot of um, what would otherwise be spending provisions, but we do it through the tax code, things like the earned income tax credit, things like uh, different um, uh, housing subsidies and things like that. We do it through the tax code. And it, that also makes us a little bit unique as well relative to other countries. And that has some historic politics behind it. It's a spending program, but it looks like a tax cut, so both parties can kind of get on board with it. The problem is, is that it's so dramatically reduced the size of our tax base that we need these higher tax rates, and those cause distortions to savings and labor supply. Whereas if what we did is just made the tax base much wider, and that would get yeah. be getting rid of everybody's favorite deductions like mortgage interest, maybe uh, even yeah. the health deduction at the employer level and things like that, that would greatly broaden the tax base and allow you to get away with not having higher rates. Um, and uh, but again, something that would be have to certainly be phased in over time, and also to essentially get the employer out of the game of thinking about retirement and health care because with a modern m mobile workforce, that really there's no particular reason that should be tied to your specific employer. That's something that should be highly mobile, and it's tied to you. And, um, you know, we, we have to figure out how to uh, maybe get away from the employer-based stuff that was really an artifact of World War II and wage controls back then. And uh, right. you know, kind of a modern workforce is going to require a lot more portability. So taking these ideas and, and you know, what is the belief that one of these three ideas or, or a combination of them might be able to have in terms of the money that would be raised and potentially that obviously being able to be funneled back into paying off some of the debt, how would that play out? And, and usually, if memory serves me, you, you look at this really in, in about a 10-year window. Yeah, and so we could look over the next 10 years, and then we even look uh, certainly beyond. But for now, the first 10 years, you know, you could get 4 to $5 trillion from these different um, uh, mixtures. Uh, the, what we also do is uh, uh, go out uh, broader in time, um, so we also look all the way out to 2050, what happens to the, to the amount of federal debt relative to the size of the economy. And we can, uh, if in fact we do this mixture, for example, where we have some um, uh, value-added tax, we disallow you know, itemized deductions going forward, just create a simpler uh, taxes and we cut some discretionary spending growth and even some infrastructure growth and things like that. 
Um, even accounting for the effects of those things on the economy, uh, we could stabilize by 2050 uh, the debt-GDP ratio or, or around 100 um, percent. That's not a great value. I'd love to get even less than that, but at least stabilize it, whereas otherwise it's going to be closer to 190 percent, which is a much higher number, and that's just not sustainable. And over the next 10 years, we could raise about $5.5 trillion that way. And so it is uh, one of those things that there will be some sacrifice, there will be pain, um, but you know, there's going to be a lot more of that um, if the government doesn't take action. We have a separate brief mapping all this out that basically we have 20 years left. If in the next 20 years we don't take a very decisive action, um, the U.S. will have to default some way on its debt, regardless of debt ceiling limit agreements. Uh, it will either not be able to make interest payments or it will implicitly default by monetizing and cre creating significant inflation. Uh, really, 20 years is the outer bound of everything. And so yeah. if we don't take decisive action in the next, uh, really in the e easier to do it right now than to wait for a few years. But if we don't take it when the next uh, decisive action in the next few years to really help us uh, over the next 20 years, we're, we're, we are in a serious situation, and this is very different than COVID and the financial crisis. And those crises, what, how do we get out of them? We just printed, you know, we, uh, we just sold a bunch more debt. We, you know, we yeah. increased the debt to get out of this. When the problem is caused by debt itself, you can't just issue more debt to get out of it. Sure. Um, that just leads yep. to hyperinflation. And so uh, it's, it's a serious, very predictable problem that we're on. And it just requires action uh, being taken right now. Kent, always great to talk with you. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. You got a Kent Smetters, who's faculty director at the Penn Wharton Budget Model. And you can read their assessment on the Penn Wharton Budget Model website. Uh, so go check it out today. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.